Okay, well, welcome to everyone. Hopefully uh, this is all coming through and I counted to 20 seconds correctly in my head there. Um, this is the product taker panel and I'm your, the moderator um, again for uh, for the panel. I'm Ben Nolan at Stiefel. Uh, have a have a real murderer's row of product tanker representatives here. Uh, everybody can see hopefully on their screen um, from really all of the, or most of the big product tanker uh, companies in the world. Um, and uh, you can, they're probably familiar to all of you. I'm not going to belabor uh, with introductions here. Uh, they can do that if they'd, if they'd like, but uh, I, I'd like to start things off um, with a little bit of a poll, a show of hands, although we can't see Robert's hand, so we'll, we'll just uh, trust for him to uh, voice in. But not necessarily uh, how many of you are, are optimistic with respect to the outlook for product tankers, because this is shipping and uh, that's it, you know a foregone conclusion that we're optimistic. But, um, but that how many of you are confident in that outlook and or in that optimism, assuming that you are in fact uh, optimistic. So maybe a show of hands or a, uh, a yes or whatever, no um, the, with respect to sort of your optimism. Highly confident. Highly confident. Absolutely. Absolutely confident or? Yes, absolutely confident. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <All> right. <laughs> All right, Kevin, you raised your hand. You're confident. Okay, uh, Carlos, Tony, what about you guys? Confident. Okay, Tony's confident. And Carlos, confident, confident. All right. Oh, confident to medium. Okay. All right. A little, a little asterisk there. But but I think we need to be thoughtfully confident. Thoughtfully confident, right? Just suggesting not to go out and order ships. You're not you're not quite that confident, I guess. Um, the uh, that is what I expected. Um, and I, I think um, you can certainly look at the order book and we'll talk about supply uh, in a little while. Um, and that's the more obvious aspect of the supply and demand equation. Um, but the more challenging thing, I think, at least for investors to get their heads around as indicative of the share prices uh, is the, uh, the demand side. And so I thought we'd start there. Uh, everybody here is confident that the, the market's going to look good. Um, the, the investing community is a little bit less confident on demand. So let's talk about demand. Um, and maybe we'll start it out. The IEA came out with their updated views yesterday and there's a wide swath, a much wider swath of views. BP taking a more pessimistic approach and you know others more optimistic, but uh, the IA seems like maybe yesterday they were right in the middle of the path. Um, but, but Tony, maybe we'll start with you. Um, talk a little bit about how you see demand developing. And again, none of us are in control of that, but, uh, but just what, what in the outlook for demand gives you confidence as it relates to product tankers? Sure. So, uh, you know, I think um, it's an opportunity to explain why I said we ought to be thoughtfully confident because you're right, the IEA report that came out yesterday, um, you know, it's an excellent report um, and it really focuses on the impact of, of both the pandemic and the energy transition um, and over a fairly long term period out to 2040. So, you know, right from the start, they state clearly that there's no single storyline about the future of oil demand. Um, they say it's, it's heavily influenced by the duration of the pandemic, which we don't know yet. Um, and the economic and social impact that comes out of that. So they feel that we ought to be looking at a wide range of possible energy futures. And in fact, they lay out four cases. 
Um, so I'm, I'm glad you brought up this report because because that centers on what uh, what you know I think is a good a good frame good framing for our discussion here. So I think the question you know we should ask is you know are, are any of the scenarios that the IE lays out good for product tankers and and the answer we think is definitely yes. Um, from an investor standpoint, um, to think otherwise is to possibly miss out um, on a huge opportunity, especially considering the currently depressed share prices um, as an entry point. So I think there are three key points to make here. Um, the first is that the IEA uh, still believes peak oil demand is not going to be much before 2040. The second point is that their base case for oil consumption growth to 2030, um, they call that their steps case, um, is not that different from before. Um, their old pre-pandemic scenario 2030 was actually around 1.1%. Um, that's, that's the demand growth, the consumption growth that, that we actually saw from 2010 to 2020 or 2019. So it's, you know, that wasn't that different. Uh, now they're reducing that. Um, they're, you know, starting in 2019. So this doesn't start off an artificial low, but they're now saying, you know, if you calculate it on a, on a logarithmic annual return basis or growth basis, they're saying now it's 0.85%. So that's not much different. <clears throat> the third and most important point is that um, product tanker demand uh, growth is not the same as oil demand growth, right? Um, and I think that's an important point for investors to keep in mind, um, even those that have been around the space a long time and those that are looking at it now. Um, in fact, over the past 10 years, product tanker demand growth has been four or five percent, um, despite oil consumption growing at only 1.1 percent. So the key difference is attributable to refinery development um, and oil trade complexity. And we think that both of these are going to continue or even increase with all the disruption taking place um, in the refinery space um, and the new regulations that are coming. So in reality, product tanker demand to 2030 may be slightly lower than before, but maybe not by much. Maybe it's going to be three percent instead of four or five percent. Um, and it's also important to point out that these additional factors, you know, that are, you know, beyond just pure oil consumption growth um, are additive. They're not, they don't, they're not multipliers, right? So even with no growth in oil consumption, we could still enjoy ongoing product tanker demand growth. So, you know, once we get past the pandemic, the outlook, we think, for product tanker demand growth is still very good. Um, it's really a question of whether supply will continue to be constrained so we can see a much tighter market. Um, and then the final point is that, you know, um, of course, first, we have to get through the short-term demand dip, and that's a topic that I think we can move on to and let others comment on. Sure. Um, it, it, does anybody else have any any thoughts, as especially as it relates to sort of the medium to longer-term uh, demand outlook, which I think, again, that's probably more of what's giving investors pause relative to sort of the, the near-term shock and awe of, uh, of the pandemic, but any other comments yeah, as to why you're confident yeah i'd like to add to what uh, tony said that's also i mean an important story that uh, we have heard before but it's uh, even more important now is that uh, we have to look also at the refinery additions and where that is going to take place and uh, if the planned refinery additions go ahead we are talking about six million uh, barrels per day more over the coming four or five years uh, of which around 2.2 million in, uh, in China um, and 76% uh, of that in the Middle East uh, uh, or, uh, or Asia. And a lot of that, as we said, in China. 
And, uh, and so a lot of that will be export driven, even the refineries addition in China will far exceed the, the consumption growth in the, in the country, which is slowing down. So it will be probably around 1 million barrels more than the consumption growth. So what we'll see is a lot of attrition in the refining industry, a lot of uh, older refineries going out of business, uh, utilization falling or, or outright closures. This is a trend we have been seeing already, but it's actually probably going to become a, even more pronounced in the coming years um, because of uh, potentially the slower growth in, in demand uh, for oil, which uh, which will mean that the only the most profitable uh, refineries will will be able to stay in business, and of course these newer refineries which are which are being built, they are more competitive, they are more complex, and uh, and they will win market share relative to the older refineries. So ton miles will uh, will increase, and even with a flat uh, increase in consumption, we can have much more trade in refined products possibly, and also over longer distances. Any other items to add there? Well, maybe just a short comment to it. I mean, I, I agree with everything that was being said, and, and I think it's a good description of, of where we are. Um, but you also asked a little bit about, you know, on the, on the short-term side and demand, right? And I think, I mean, at least I can say what, how we felt about it in May, June, and, and I'm sure maybe my colleagues here share it, that we, we had actually expected uh, a slower rebound in demand, to be fair. And I think what we have seen already now in, in Q3, when you look at a demand rebound around the world, I mean, it has gone substantially faster than, uh, than what we would have expected. And a lot faster than, than if you look back in 15, 16, when we had a similar inventory built. So I think it, you know, it, we're all related, as Tony said, to the, the pandemic and, and how long it's going to go. But at least we've come back and stabilized. And if your assumption is that that regulators and governments around the world, um, you know, now have some experience as to how to handle it, I guess the, the main assumption for us is that it won't get back to normal very quickly. But getting to the levels we've seen and the rapid rebound, I think, has been positive. And and you know, when you look at, at rates today that are being quoted by brokers around, and you compare them to previous years. You know, you can see that their rates for Q3 this year compared to last year and the year before, et cetera, is still better. Right? And I think this is a, I think a strong signal that the underlying demand, even short term here, has come back uh, at a relatively strong pace. And, and Michael, I'd like to add to that, that, you know, if you look at the floating storage only, I mean, we started the year with 25 million barrels uh, of uh, refined products in floating storage and uh, that peaked at 75 and by mid-September we got back at 42 so half more than half of the increase was already absorbed in a, a relatively short period of time uh, which confirms what you were saying that the rebalancing is happening quite fast. So um, maybe to add actually a question that has come in on the line here, but goes with what we're talking about. How much of the underlying demand of what you guys carry is jet fuel and how, you know, flying around the world? Yes, I mean, I, uh, I think as far as, as as far as we're concerned, if you look at a broader base, I think, um, and we look at our own fleet, I would say that the jet fuel part is probably somewhere, you know, depending on the size of the ships, between five, six, seven percent, roughly. Um, 
But I think what's interesting to see is when you look at the uh, the jet fuel consumption and the number of flights around the world, uh, obviously we all know that the long haul flights with, with people obviously have been a lot less, but we have seen number of flights going up quite dramatically, mainly also shorter hauls, but also um, for cargo instead. Um, but on an overall basis, I think those will be the numbers on an average year that we'd be carrying across our fleet. Okay. Um, sounds good. Thanks for that. Now, um, I, and, and I, again, because demand's the most important thing. I don't know if anybody else had any other sort of uh, uh, additions that they felt like weren't necessarily hit on, but I, I do think that we want to be uh, as exhaustive as possible because that's the part that, <laughs> that most people are uncomfortable with. Anybody else? Okay, good. So. Just one uh, last point, uh, Ben. I think on the demand side, I think that you know our our, our sector is highly correlated with the crude sector, and uh, you know the, the the supply of crude, uh, of course, is a is a key factor here. And uh, the ramp up in uh, OPEC production that is planned, of course, is going to be very supportive for the crude sector, uh, and uh, indirectly also for us. So that is not uh, you know, a given. I mean, there are, they, they have a current plan to ramp up production from 24 million barrels per day to 29 million barrels per day by April next year. But of course, that, that can change if uh, depending on how the contagions and the economic activity and demand for oil develops over the coming months. But, uh, but if that ramp up occurs, then that will definitely, in the near term, will, will definitely help the market. Well, that gets yeah. to my uh, service. Ben, 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 I would Go just ahead, get, yeah, I would sort of take, yeah, and traditionally it has been heavily correlated with the crude oil sector, but, you know, that's breaking down as you know, in favor of the product market and may that may accelerate even further in favor of the product market in the future. You've got, you know, refineries coming up, as pointed out by all speakers in the Middle East and in China, that is particularly in the Middle East, you're going to basically refine a barrel of oil that otherwise would have been taken on a crude tanker and you're going to ship it on a product tanker and that matters in countries like you know new zealand is is has just recently followed australia in closing um you know its own oil refineries and uh starting to import more products it's closed one may close more in the future so you're getting a push and a pull here as to the benefit of the product tanker market's demand at the direct cost of crude oil shipments. So that is, is moving you know, in a pretty useful direction for the product tanker market itself. So I would also think that as you run down, you know, it's an interesting things as we've now got more developed product tank product use in Africa and in South America with still very little refinery capacity to the extent that U.S. own production, um, you know, you, you could start getting some pretty exotic voyages coming soon or more frequently from the Arabian Gulf to West Africa or even from the Arabian Gulf all the way to, to South America. And uh, <clears throat> before we move on from demand, just one, one other point I think it's worth making, uh, kind of build, build off of what Robert was just talking about. And, you know, there, there is talk in the oil industry of a three-speed recovery in demand of gasoline, diesel, and jet fuel. 
Um, and, you know, there's a remarkable difference in the demand levels for gasoline versus jet and even gasoline versus middle distillates generally right now. And that, those kind of conditions you know, create trading opportunities um, and, and uh, generate cargo movement and storage opportunities, right? So, you know, we can't overlook the fact that, yes, we are coming out of a deep hole from a fundamental demand standpoint, but disruption, uh, dislocation, imbalances around the world are a feature of this recovery, and that, that does uh, create, generate a lot of demand in and of itself. Yeah. Okay. Now that's that's helpful, and and it's also helpful to have a, a little insight that the uh, the market in terms of consumption is recovering probably faster than what what some would have thought. Um, but real quickly, uh, I, I want to ask a a just a, a what if question. I mean, uh, and basically, what if BP is right? What if last year was peak oil, uh, and and maybe the recovery slows from here? what do you guys do as ship owners to protect as optimistic as you may be and as confident as you may be what what are you doing to just in case i mean or how does the world look in the event that that a demand driven recovery is slower or 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 maybe non-existent i mean what, what happens then I think that you've got some interesting things in this. I think that it, we, you can't dislocate the supply side from this. I think all the talk, you know, whether or not BP are right or they're wrong, all the talk related to what type of engine you should have, what's going to happen in the long term, will you, you know, will in 15, 20, 25 years still have as much, uh, you know, product requirement going around the world as you are now is going to keep a crimp on that supply side, along with the other regulations that are going to continue to mean that vessels that are you know, more or less over 15 years old get, get removed. So this is going to, you know, I don't think we're going to suddenly get away from the combustion engine or using plastics. Um, so I don't think that this is really going to affect the product tanker market too much over the next, you know, years to come, the next five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years, I think you could get really premium earnings and cash flow bonanzas as you get severe shock in terms of lack of supply. When there will be times, even now, when you look when you look at the new building order book compared to the aging of the fleet that's happening, the fact that we're going to really crank up into vessel ages over sixteen in the next year and the years to come where you're going to have certain periods where there's negative supply growth into a positive demand scenario for ton miles as all of the speakers have talked about the product tankers are almost unique in the sense we don't need to see headline demand in world oil in order to create you know bottom line demand in ton miles for products so i thought don't think we necessarily have to you know prepare for it other than, you know, recognize that, you know, it, it is going to be difficult for anybody. Fortunately, you know, we don't have to necessarily go out and order new ships. You know, we have ships in the water, all of us. So, you know, it's just going to make it harder for someone to make the decision along with the basic decision of what, what combustion engine you should have right now, what engine you should have to to actually build new where you started off with i think it's going to be very difficult to overbuild this market at all now 
yeah. and we'll get into ship propulsion in a little bit, but um, uh, well, I didn't want to interrupt it. And no, I, I mean, just a, a quick comment to that. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, you asked what if, right? And, and, and I think it's a bit of a, um, sorry, can you hear me? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, right, sorry. No, I was just saying to, to, to the what-if scenario, I mean, I think as Robert alluded to, I think he's right. I mean, was, was it peak oil 2019? Or there's a lot of, of, of speculations. I mean, I think fundamentally, you know, the world is talking a lot about the zero emissions and, and the targets we have in the future, which I think is, is right. And I think we're all following along these lines, trying to improve and be more efficient in what we do. Uh, you know, but there are no, there is no solution tomorrow, right? So I think even in a peak oil scenario, whenever it is, in my view, you're going to have a long, long tail of oil as being part of our energy mix, right? Even longer than I think than, than our current assets. So, so when you say what if, I would say, well, even, even when you hit a peak oil scenario and look at the tail afterwards, it's really about having a business that's competitive. And, and, you know, because the weakest are going to drop first. So I think, uh, you know, the what if scenario, I think is more about having you know, a business that is streamlined and cost efficient and is going to be able to take advantage of that as you go forward, because there will be a need for transportation of oil for, you know, many, many years to come. Yeah, no, that's helpful. And and just to let people on the line know, there's a few questions. Uh, Robert uh, Bugby is not uh, his on video. He's... Um, uh, there's uh, a lot going on in terms of Wi-Fi <laughs> over at his house, which I can completely identify with. Um, but uh, now I, I want to move over to uh, to well, we'll talk about and we'll go ahead and talk about the supply side now. Um, uh, as was alluded to several times. Um, the order book is small, has been small for a while though, and, and that has probably been somewhat beneficial, but it hasn't led to yet a, uh, at least a prolonged bonanza, as it were. Um, and, and at least the, um, the overarching view is that because nobody knows what kind of engine to pour or, or what type of fuel to use, uh, nobody's using um, or nobody's ordering ships. Um, so I'll, I'm going to combine the supply side with the propulsion aspect here. Uh, if you were to order ships, and I, I know most of you have not really been active ordering ships lately, but but if you were, if somebody said, "I'll, I'll give you money and you you must order a ship," what type of an engine, what type of a fuel would you use today? I'm going to just go down the line. Uh, uh, Tony, you're at the top of my screen. So somebody said you have to order. Oh, a I, I think I would say okay, but I'd find a way to pocket the money and not do it. <laughs> so sorry, but uh, yeah, that's, that's the wrong you, right now. You got to be because you got to be careful. Nobody, and, knows, nobody and, knows what the right engine is, right? So right. you know, better to go buy some really cheap, uh, you know, really cheap secondhand vessels, or even better, buy some really cheap stock, right? So <clears throat> that would that would be my approach. Okay, that's a non-answer. So, all right, next. Ben, I think the argument. Look, I think the, uh, I think it's kind of simple for for those people who need to order ships and replace their tonnage because they're too old, they just can't afford it. For those people who could afford it, it's just a totally irrational Alex. So, such an. I think what Tony is saying is that it's an irrational allocation of cash right now for so many reasons. I mean, all, you know, all of these stocks are trading so well below net asset value that, that 
you know, and, and we have the critical mass. We have the vessels on the water. You know, some of us have pretty new fleets here. It just doesn't enter the radar to order a vessel. And that's sort of what's exciting when you can't dislocate the supply story from the demand. And I would also take a little bit of umbrage at your opening statement into this question in that we are seeing the benefits of this tightening supply side. You know, let's look at this year, forget the stock prices, but every single quarter now, year over year, for a number of quarters has been better than that preceding quarter a year before. So the market has been tightening up quite rapidly and will tighten up much further because of the weakness of the supply. But the question of, you know, give us the, the money to order ships, it just doesn't doesn't register right now, I don't think, for, for, for anybody. Like I mean, the, you know, not, not even Torm have stopped ordering ships now, for God's sake. Well, let's like not. To to that. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I'd like to add to that. No, I, I agree with uh, what Tony and Robert just said. And also from our perspective, I mean, if we look at the uh, potential use of funds, I mean, for us, it would uh, it would be, for example, purchasing some, uh, exercising some of the purchase options we have on the lease vessels we have. And, you know, we calculated what the IRR of those uh, uh, exercising such options would be, and they're actually quite attractive. So that, that would definitely be, you know, a consistent use of fund with our strategy, which is, deleveraging and uh, it's also you know coherent with what we said now if you know if we are going to have a market that uh, that could experience some uh, some soft patches in the future because of this uh, uh, potentially uh, not uh, spectacular demand growth you want to have a company which is uh, has a solid balance sheet which has a low break even and that's the way for us to achieve it. And if it's not that, if we want to be a bit more speculative, share buybacks, of course, make sense, I think, for all the companies here. Uh, and um, and they, they provide a, a very attractive returns uh, on paper and uh, I believe also in reality. So so I think that's another, another good use of funds. And ordering vessels, it's really not a top priority, I believe, for, for any of us. But, uh, but I, I also believe that from a technology perspective, if we had to order a vessel today, uh, we would, it would be a conventional, uh, it would be a conventional fuel type, uh, fuel oil type uh, engine and for now. Uh, uh, but I would rather wait and maybe get a slightly more efficient engine because the vessels delivered between 2025 and 2030 will have to comply with the uh, phase three of the EEDI, uh, and therefore, you know, they, they will have to be more efficient. 30% uh, reduction in CO2 emissions relative to the 2008 baseline. Uh, so that is the first stepping change. I, I believe it would be a gradual process. And then eventually we can, you know, think about hydrogen and ammonia as a solution, possibly initially as a dual fuel, but it will take time. I think we are talking there, in, you know, about vessels delivered in 10 years time, not, uh, not vessels delivered uh, uh, in the near to medium term. Okay, I, I, I got an answer from you there. So I'm one for three. What, what about uh, Kevin or Michael? Have to order a ship, what kind of an engine do you put in it? Well, Ben, I think you're asking the wrong group of people. <laughs> as, as far as I can tell, the panel has about 350 ships on the water and zero on order. If I missed one from somebody, I'm sorry. but. 
You know, from, from our perspective, I think we probably have the oldest product fleet uh, of everybody on the panel, and we're not even looking at new builds. I mean, there's no axiom that says you have to replace your ship when it gets to a certain age. If it doesn't make sense within the vehicle that you own these vessels, you don't have to spend the capital. So I think if we were asked, we would tell somebody, you're, you're probably better off finding a, a different management team to execute that for you. And, and, and isn't that isn't that amazing well, what you just heard there from Kevin, right? I think what Kevin has summed it up in a really great cogent way, okay? That you you've got this, you know, incredible market where this supply side is really really constrained by the participants at this point. And you know, if you run out what he's saying, and you also on that other side, something's missing here is the dynamic has changed over the last two three years. Companies like like Kevin's have, and, and, and Michael's and, 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 and ours have, take, have taken part in consolidation. Consolidation can happen in two ways, an M&A activity. Uh, we've seen a lot of that. And we've also seen recently, you know, an, a rapid increase in pooling. Each of the big pools have added vessels, et cetera, et cetera. So this is starting to change also the dynamic within the industry of that supply. That supply is, is, is much better dynamically able now to face the demand and all the benefits of that consolidation. And that makes this product market super, super excited. When you've, when you've got the players themselves now are you know, consolidated enough and they're, they're you know, and someone like Kevin is very clearly talking about very rational behavior that there is no requirement just to go and order a ship just to, to keep a fleet the same size etc and that that's what makes along with this demand side that can expand without headline demand really unique in actually bulk shipping that's what makes the product market i think most exciting out of all of the bulk shipping markets is this is this wonderful supply side the the supply side itself tightening combined with a demand that does not require headline demand to create ton-mile expansion. But I think also, Ben, maybe to, to just a final comment to this as well, uh, I think we shouldn't forget that, uh, fine, I mean, if you were to order a ship today, say, with a dual fuel engine, um, you know, the problem is also that the cost of doing that is, for instance, for an MR ship is like, you know, six, seven million dollars on top of a contract price of 33 million. So, you're buying into something which you probably can't use for the next five years because the infrastructure won't be there to give you the alternative fuel. So you're basically adding on a capex without being able to harvest anything. So even if, you know, if, in a way, if people had the money, I think that in itself is also holding back the supply. And then we should remember that, you know, the banks, uh, you know, the Poseidon principles, uh, the reporting of CO2 emissions, et cetera, into the banks uh, is obviously also another issue in terms of getting finance and walking in to, to, to buy new builds of a conventional design. You know, I, I don't think you're going to get a lot of support around that, neither from the lending side, but not from the equity side either, actually. Okay. Uh, well, I, uh, I guess uh, there was not as uh, swift of an answer as I thought it would be, but it is universal. It does seem like, and, and maybe it is a little self-serving, but it is universal that, that uh, uh, there is uh, yeah, no even inkling of an appetite uh, under any circumstance to order new ships. 
Um, there's many, many questions that have come in. I'm going to try to uh, fit a few of them in. And, and there's several here that sort of link to a topic that we've begun to address. And I, I was going to ask on a little bit anyway. Um, I, I think, Carlos, you had talked a little bit earlier about sort of the potential for improvements in the crude market as a function of more OPEC production. Um, and uh, but uh, Tony, Robert, uh, at, at least you talked about closures of refineries and sort of the cannibalization of the crude tanker market by the product tanker fleet. Um, is it possible to have, and this is maybe an unanswerable question, but is it possible to have a really good product tanker market and a really bad crude tanker market in the view of you guys? It is possible in, in, in terms of the different sectors. You know, we've seen, you know, for, for, for quite extended periods now that, you know, you, you've seen MRs, even MRs, you know, one of the smaller categories of products outperforming Suez Maxes and Aframaxes. And you've seen LR2s basically outperform the lot, including VLCCs now for two, two and a half months. So it, it, it's possible, and, and, and the, it, it's possible that this will, will happen as for all the things that we've laid down, that they can be very separated markets depending what's happening in the demand side. And I think that the, the, a different way of wording it would be, you know, instead of having a great product market and a terrible crude market, can you have a reasonable product market while there's a bad crude market or a, or a good crude market or a good product market while there's an okay product market, if, if, if that makes sense, Ben. I, I think it's much harder to do it on the extremes. I think it would be difficult to have a truly great product market with a terrible crude market because probably the terrible crude market would come about for some macro event somewhere, right? So, but within the different grades, I think you can have products better than crude. Would, uh, well, I, Kevin, you, you have both. Um, what do you think? Yeah, no, we um, absolutely agree in the short term. And I think that's one of the reasons we like owning both is there can be a dislocation between the two. I think in the longer term, it's hard to imagine having one with sustained outperformance over the other, given the switching at the margin. Um, I'd extend that all the way down to small tankers and chemical tankers as well. The whole chain sort of has to move in the same way in the long term, or these economic pressure points get, get evened out between the classes. Any differing opinions? No. Okay. Good. Uh, I would be more. I would be more in Robert's camp. I have to be honest. I, I think you can have an okay product tanker market on the backdrop of a not so okay crude market. Uh, mm -hmm. But if the crude market absolutely bottoms, it's it's you know heads right down. That's because there's a, an overarching macro issue that affects both. Okay. Uh, and I, I'm being told that there's only five minutes, so I'm going to try to rush these through. Uh, so uh, do you guys, with your optimism for the outlook of the market uh, and also compressed supply, uh, there has been some talk about sort of a reduction in the useful life of product tankers. Is there any of you that feel that that might be plausible, even in a good market? <laughs> 
Well, I, I think there are a few, a few things happening which are actually quite important uh, in terms of regulations, uh, uh, which is going to penalize uh, all the vessels. Uh, firstly, there is the European trading scheme, which they are talking about, which is probably going to be implemented by 2023, and it is going to concern at least uh, intra-European voyages, if not also voyages uh, within European waters, yeah, calling one European port. Uh, and uh, that will uh, establish probably a baseline of uh, how much vessels can pollute. And then vessels which pollute above that baseline will have to buy uh, carbon credits. So the, the older vessels will be penalized. And uh, that in itself could potentially be, a, you know, a, um, a, a catalyst for, for more de demolition. And then uh, more recently, there is uh, also the sea cargo charter that was signed by some important oil companies uh, and more signatories are probably going to join and uh, which, uh, which is going to increase the transparency on the uh, emissions of the vessels that are chartered and operated by these companies. And, uh, uh, and therefore, you know, they'll have an incentive to charter younger vessels, which means, again, uh, all the vessels are going to be penalized and, uh, and therefore we're going to be seeing probably more demolition of all the vessels. In addition to the Poseidon principles that have been around now for some time, and that means that uh, all the vessels are also finding it harder to, to have access to bank financing, which is affecting resale values of all the vessels. Uh, and also would probably spur more demolition. So uh, yes, potentially the the the, uh, the age, the average age of the of the product tank is is going to demolition age is going to fall because of because of these reasons. Any um, counter views to that? As we're running out of time. No, can I, uh, just Ben, can I just throw something in? I think it's really important, which sure. is that in this new in this new kind of environment that we're going into. Uh, there's an important linkage between oil demand and tanker supply because if oil demand gets restricted uh, because of you know the move toward decarbonization that's going to be associated with a real hard push to uh, tighten up on emissions from an existing fleet um, which means that you know through EEXI and the other initiatives that are underway uh, and that's going to you know slow down the world fleet and it's going to ultimately result in scrapping so I think you know that BP outlook has to be you know, kind of correlated and connected to a significant reduction in supply as a consequence as well. And so you could have a very strong market on the back of that as well, if you have a modern, you know, good fleet. So. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm back. <laughs> Can you hear me? Well, I we're running out of time. I did want to uh, give uh, I I any last, you know, words of wisdom. Is what would you know? What would you guys say to convince investors that the discount in your relative share prices, and I assume all of you think that your share prices are overly discounted, uh, needs to needs to you know be closed. What would you what, what's your elevator pitch on your, you know, uh, revaluation? Any, any takers on that? Well, I mean, I think at least what I would say is that I think, and this goes across the board here, that um, that most of the share prices, in my view, reflect, uh, you know, an Armageddon situation that people thought would happen, 
following the strong first six months. And in a way, it hasn't really corrected to what reality is, as you spoke about, that, that the demand has rebounded much quicker. And when we look at the, the, the quoted rates for Q3 and compare them to previous years, we're actually in a much stronger position than, than, than what was being assumed. Great. Well, I see Nicholas, and that probably means that I'm being kicked off. Um, but uh, uh, and I apologize. There were a number of questions we didn't get to. Just no time. But uh, I, I did want to finish off here by thanking you all and thanking Nicholas and the Capital Link team for inviting me to do this. Hopefully, it's been helpful, uh, and I appreciate you guys. Uh, you know, letting me push you around a little bit. <laughs> well, I also wanted to thank you all for joining. It has been a terrific panel terrific attendance, an avalanche of questions. So you guys are very popular. And Ben, thank you again for uh, a terrific uh, moderator uh, talk. Thank you to everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.